This episode of the Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by SR3 Rescue Concepts because you don't know what you don't know. Life Saving Systems Corporation, we do our work so you can do yours. Tough gear for tough jobs. Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated hoist and winch provider. And Hilo Vodka, simply better vodka. SR3 Rescue Concept is a training company that can help you with your helicopter training, a standardization and safety check, or maybe just an audit or an FAA refresher. They're ready to bring your agency up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. The training staff is amazing! With certified and flight instructor pilots, experienced crew members, which I'm happy to say that I get to be one of them, They offer training in rescue, medical, tactical, firefighting, ground operations, and night vision goggle use. SR3 has partnered with Petzl to assist with the PPE inspection course and the highly specific Lazard, which is used in helicopter cliff and mountain rescues. SR3 goes above and beyond the helicopter world too. They also provide high angle rescue training and tactical medicine training. Contact them today at sr3rescueconcepts.com that's sr3rescueconcepts.com and follow them on Instagram at sr3 underscore rescue that's sr3 underscore rescue we're also brought to you by Life Saving System Corporation they manufacture the world's toughest helicopter rescue gear from my favorite harness as a rescueman the Triton to the rescue baskets and litters, and of course, the most popular hoist hook in helicopters, the D-Lock. The team at LSC cuts, bends, welds, sews, and machines these products into existence every day and then sends them on their way to us. We do our work so you can do yours. LSC, tough gear for tough jobs. Check them out today at lifesavingsystems.com. That's lifesavingsystems.com. And follow them on Instagram at R-E-S-Q-G-E-A-R. That's at R-E-S-Q-G-E-A-R. We're also brought to you by Breeze Eastern. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those who get rescued has not. Contact Breeze Eastern today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. That's breeze-eastern.com. And we are brought to you by Hilo Vodka. Hilo Vodka is a premium craft vodka made from the highest quality ingredients and six times distilled. Hilo Vodka was made to be crisp, refreshing, and unintrusive. It's exactly how vodka should be made, clean enough to drink neat and worthy to be mixed with your favorite cocktails. They make a crisp, refreshing vodka that is carefully carbon filtered for a smooth sip and no bite. Hilo Vodka is proudly 100% American made and veteran owned. Simply better vodka. Order yours today by visiting HiloShopVodka.com. That's HiloShopVodka.com. FedEx delivery is available in most states. Use the promo code capitals R-E-S-Q and you get 10% off your order. Plus, if you buy three bottles or more, it's free shipping. 
Please remember to drink responsibly. And FAA Part 91 says eight hours, bottle the throttle. I want you to take a minute and I want you to think about the word mentor. A mentor is somebody that you should be able to look up to, somebody that should give you advice, somebody that you can call upon if you have questions. When I was a new rescue swimmer just out of A school, there were a lot of guys that were my mentors and I looked up to them all in the shop. Bob Watson, Kurt Revels, Jason Bunch, Will Milam, all of these guys were my mentors and I looked up to each one of them for different tips and tricks that they have to help me with my job. Eventually, you become the mentor. And you have the younger rescue swimmer, rescue specialist. They're looking up to you for all of your advice and your tips and tricks. They're the ones that are coming to you for the answers because they're the ones that have the questions. Now you've lived it, you've experienced it, you now have the knowledge. My next guest, we had the opportunity to really mentor each other. I had a bunch of questions about paramedic stuff and he really answered those and really helped me through my paramedic program. At the same time, he came to his first helicopter rescue unit and I was his mentor to help him on the hook, in the aircraft, and with everything that we had going on. And together, we were an amazing team. The funny part about the whole thing is he's eight years younger than me, which is not a big deal in any other scene. But when you think about the word mentor and who you're looking up to, they're usually older and have more experience. In this case... My boy Lane Abshire, younger than me, has so much more experience than me as a paramedic. So I looked up to him in order to teach me what I needed to know to get through medic school. So I ask you guys again, think about the word mentor. Can you go out there and get mentorship from somebody younger than you? Can you learn from somebody else that has more knowledge than you? Can you be the mentor to help somebody else grow beyond you. Because that's what happened between me and my boy, Lane Abshire. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Real Rescue Podcast. With me today, my friend from Louisiana, my medic, my mentor. I know that it sounds crazy, but yes, Lane Abshire, amongst other people, were my mentors down there. So without further ado, Mr. Lane Abshire himself. What's up, Lane? Jason Quinn, how are you? Dude, I am fantastic now. I'm looking at you. Come on. (laughs) It's been a while. It has. It has indeed. Dude, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Yeah, so, thanks for having me, dude. Absolutely. So I, I got to give everybody a little bit of a backstory uh, because I truly mean that when when I tell you, like, you guys, you guys down in the golf, man, you guys were my mentors to be medic. I don't think I would have made medic had it not been for you guys. So my paramedic training was awesome, but I had you, I had Lanny Cunningham, I had Eben Latrimer, Latrim. Eben, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Nobody can pronounce his last name. <laughs> and then I had Alex, and then I had Ashley, and I just, the 
Clarence, I mean, all you guys, I, I would bounce stuff off you guys and you guys would give me information. And next thing you know, I'm passing my national registry and I'm like, yeah. And that was all you guys. Well, it was a lot of you guys. So thank you. Absolutely, man. That was yeah. a good dynamic down there. We had a blast in, in down there. And, you know, when we were so to, to even go further into the backstory. So you were one of the original guys that came down into the Gulf of Mexico with us when we were building that all up. And, uh, you know, it was, it was like from ground zero to build an entire program. And all of a sudden we're getting called out and launched out on, on Lord knows what we didn't know what we were going to be rolling up on. And it was so fun, dude. Some of our hitches together, some of our times, you, me, Joe Martin, finishing off like 80 mountain dews between the three of us in like a two week period. Yes. That's a true statement. And <laughs> I haven't touched a mountain dew since. <laughs> oh man. No, that was a good group of guys on there, dude. You know, I, I know you talk about, you know, the whole mentorship from the, the, the paramedic side, but I mean, uh, we were fortunate to have such a good group of SAR guys. I, I was 24 years old whenever I started down there, dude, I, I didn't know anything about anything. You know, so the it kind of came full circle. You know, we were we were kind of mentoring each other. You know, yeah. us us to you from the medic side, and then you guys to us from the SAR side. You know, that was all new to us. That was new in the Gulf of Mexico. Nobody had ever really done it. Uh, definitely not as well and as as uh, as detailed as we did it down yeah. there. You know? So to have a, a good group of guys to mentor us through that was was pretty cool too. Well, thank you too, man. That's awesome. Well. If you don't mind, uh, just kind of introduce yourself to everybody, where you're from, a little bit of a resume background, a little history about you. Yeah, uh, my name is Lane Apshar. I'm from uh, the middle of nowhere, south of Louisiana, <laughs> uh, around the Happyville area, about, about 45 minutes south of Lafayette. Um, I've been uh, been in EMS for be 15 years on May 1st. Yeah. Uh, I've been a, a flight paramedic for the last just over about 10 and a half years. Uh, I have my flight paramedic certification and then I was a rescue specialist and flight paramedic with uh, you guys down in the golf and then ended up crossing over as a, a hoist operator. Good stuff. And uh, you're working for who right now? So I, uh, I just actually, um, I, about a year ago, year and a half ago, I took over a field training officer position with the ground EMS service close to the house here. It's ready nice. to be close to the home, raise the kids. Um, so I'm doing a lot of education stuff now. Uh, working on a, I'm working on a ground ambulance in a busy 911 area. Uh, I held on to the, some PRN status. I flew with Aravac, a life team from uh, 2015 until just recently, about a month ago. Nice. Um, decided to, you know, get rid of the whole part-time status thing and just, just get closer to home and and raise the family and uh get more into the education side of things now man good for you well i know where i'm going for my next class because that's <laughs> <laughs> i'll be coming right down to louisiana lane i'm in town <laughs> come on dude that's awesome well all right so you and i went through a bunch of stuff uh down in the gulf of mexico and and we had our own like qualification period where it was like you're it was on the job training um but after we were up and running let's go over some of the, one of the first cases that you remember down there. Yeah, I was actually fortunate enough to be on the first hoist case that we, we did as a, as an organization down there in the Gulf of Mexico. 
um, I believe myself, it was myself and Pat Barber. And uh, I don't remember how far offshore it was. I want to say it was, you know, 70, 80 miles offshore. And the um, guy was having a chest pain, cardiac event. And that, that was my first, you know, 24, 25 years old. I got thrown right into it. And uh, it's kind of one of those things that you don't forget because, uh, you know, the, the, the physics of a human being hanging from a cable below a helicopter, you know, those things just don't really go together. Um, and and, I mean, it was just, that, that was, it was intense. I, you know, I remember the adrenaline and, uh, it kind of hooks you, you know, I mean, after that first one's, after that first one's done, uh, you kind of really, either you're made to do it or you're not right. (laughs) It's either something, it's either something you're going to love or something you're going to be scared to death of. Yeah. And, uh, I think there's always kind of that fear because, you know, at any moment in time, something can go wrong, but I think that's what kind of draws us to it. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the knowing that something tragic could go wrong at any moment is kind of what, what forces us to be at our best at all moments. And, uh, and that's, and that's what I enjoyed about it. I was just drawn to it. Dude, that's awesome. And, uh, if I remember correctly, cause I know there was a debrief well after that, uh, cause you guys were the first guys to do a, a live hoist. Um, we had a, big debrief about it and it was just a it was, it was like a standard chest pain call there was nothing really abnormal about it and it was an easy in easy out but we had everybody knew about it and everybody talked about it so it's pretty bad yeah nice yeah it's an and it's a normal chest pain call until you throw in a agusta 139 and a, a good rich hoist and you know having to go down there and get the dude and he thought he was having chest pain before, and then he's yeah. 300 feet over the water hanging from a freaking cable with uh, with an old ugly coon ass like me. <laughs> I don't think that helped his chest pain at all. No, no, no. Uh, oh, my God. I'm smiling. He's scared to death. <laughs> oh, man, I loved it. You know, there's a, there's a couple of things I remember. Uh, I'm going to touch on two cases that you and I did. And it was one of the first cases that I was on with you. And we had a landing. It was nothing more than a, a medevac. Uh, we landed on top of the rig. We go down and the, this guy is frantically like kind of flailing about. And oh my gosh, I'm in so much pain. And, and this and the other thing. And I saw you in a whole new light and the paramedic side, the whole new light. And that was the moment in time that I was like, I want to do that. I want to be able to do that because you're like, he's like getting ready to pass out. And you're like, don't pass out on me. And you're like, doing a little, oh yeah, it was awesome. Then we get up in the helo and uh, I shouldn't say this to everybody, but you're like, yeah, I'm going to give you some namasoline. And the dude's like, okay, yeah. Do you feel better? Yeah. Yeah. I feel better. All right. Good. (laughs) It was all, I loved that case. So I, yeah, I'm not going to tell anybody else, anything else about that because it was just fun for Lane and I. Yeah, we had, we had some good times for sure. So there was another one that you and I had down there, which I thought was really interesting. And I wanted to bring this one up because it was a very unique case. And that was, we got called out for a guy having, he had, he had gotten hit in the head, if I remember correctly. And he was having like an amnesia attack. And basically he just, he wasn't remembering anything past he was like a 10 second Tom. Hi, my name's Tom. And then we walked up to him. Hey, my name's Tom. And so you and I, we got hoisted in. We went down below. Do you remember this? I do. All right. So we get down below on decks and, and Lane was doing a full assessment. You looked at me, you said, Hey dude, get him on the ECG. Let's get a full, uh, full 12 lead, blah, 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 blah. So we're doing all this stuff and you're having a conversation with him. And uh, it was the funniest thing to me because you have the conversation with him. And then he turns around and he's like, 
hey, what are you guys doing here? And you and I look at each other like, oh, this is going to be so fun. <laughs> so what I'd like you to do from that moment in time is walk me through a little bit of what you're, what's going through your mind. Cause we still have to hoist this guy up to the helicopter and then bring him back. So go ahead. Yeah. The, the thing, uh, the thing I get, you know, we get concerned about in patients like that with, with head injuries is, is, um, is intracranial hemorrhage, obviously. Right. So he's, he has no recollection of what happened. Um, you know, we don't have a CAT scan on, on, on board or anything to be able to look inside of his head. So it's all based off of assessment and signs and symptoms, uh, that retrograde amnesia, where he's just kind of repeating himself over and over again is, you know, it, it could be a concussion, but more than likely it's, it's indicative of, uh, intracranial hemorrhage, you know, and then, uh, what part of the brain is bleeding? We don't know. Uh, the, the brain is a closed vault, right? So that, that blood and the, it's the Monroe Kelly hypothesis, I believe is, you know, that it's brain, cerebral spinal fluid and, and blood. Right. And, but it's in a closed system, a closed vault. So, I mean, it can only expand so much if one increases, the other ones have to decrease. And then there's only one place for it to go. And that's at the base of the skull. And once it herniates down there, uh, you start getting into your respiratory, respiratory centers and stuff and, and things go downhill pretty fast. And then throw in the fact that we're, you know, a hundred something miles in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, yep. uh, that kind of puts a whole nother dynamic in it. Uh, so it's, it's kind of neurological emergencies, time is muscle, right? Same as cardiac. So it's about how fast can we get him into the aircraft safely yep. um, and then get him to uh, get into definitive care. Yep. Uh, and then it's about, you know, just continually assessing him because those patients can, they can spiral out of control pretty fast. Um, so decreasing external stimuli, which is extremely hard in the aviation environment, the helicopters loud, the rotor wash mounted around. Um, so decreasing external stimuli is pretty difficult. Um, so yeah, that, that's, what's going through my mind. You know, when you start hearing a patient repeat themselves over and over again and don't, doesn't have any recollection, recollection past, you know, 10, 20, 30 seconds prior, uh, you start getting real concerned about a, a intracranial emergency. That's awesome. And I remember specifically uh, with all of that is you and I up on the, the flight deck there, get ready to be hoisted. And all you leaned over to me is like, Hey, if this guy decides to go batshit crazy, you and I are going to win this battle. And I was like, yeah. that." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and, and that's dangerous, not only for us, but it's dangerous for him because he has no idea what's going on. You right. know, he's, he's not doing that because he wants to go crazy. He's doing that because because his brain is hemorrhaging, right? You know, yeah, so it's, totally. It's finding that, yeah, it's, it's finding that balance between not only keeping ourselves safe but keeping him safe as well. And everything from that case went flawless. Like we, he got hoisted, no problem. You could see his eyes get a little bit bigger as like he's starting to get lifted off the ground. But uh, everything went totally smooth. We got him into the hospital, and and as far as I know, everything was good. I don't, I don't know, if, I don't remember following up with any of that. But yeah, no, I didn't either. No, yeah, so. I always called it, I always referred to it as controlled chaos, right? Totally. Just, <laughs> there was nothing controlled about that entire environment, you know, anytime we had patients. Uh, but somehow we found, you know, we found a way just to, you know, make it as controllable as possible in an uncontrolled environment. Yeah, it's pretty gnarly. It was awesome. All right. So that was that one. Then there's another one I want to talk about where you called me um, at it was, I, I want to say this is another landing as well. So you guys got called out on something. And I remember you calling me and saying the patient was, was pretty legit in trouble. And you knew at that point in time, you're going to have to RSI and you were going to have to drop a tube. Um, and if I remember correctly, you asked the pilots to shut down 
and you dropped out, looked at that mountain potty, saw the vocal cords and boom, dropped a tube. And it was like that, you literally saved that guy's life that day. Yeah, that dude was in, uh, that dude was in flash pulmonary edema from an actual heart attack. Um, he was, I remember he was below the deck. Uh, he was, you know, one, I like one of the bottom decks of that, that platform had a massive heart attack, went to flash pulmonary edema and we get down there and the, the platform medics trying to deal with him, but he's hypoxic as all get out. And, uh, I'm like, we need to get him to the hella deck, you know, the, the, the helipad like 10 minutes ago, like we gotta, we gotta get him out of here. Cause that flash pulmonary edema, you know, once that, once they go into that, uh, uh an, a myocardial infarction that causes that flash pulmonary edema. I mean, they're literally drowning in their own fluid. Right. Um, so we managed to get him up to the, uh, to the hella deck. And I think that was the first guy that we had RSI offshore either. That guy was like 170 miles offshore. He was far. Yeah. Um, yeah and I, I know there so was talk about him to the deck. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll tell you a sec. Yeah. He was, he was, uh, he was deteriorating rapidly. Uh, you know, we couldn't correct the hypoxia, couldn't get IV access on the guy. And we ended up drilling him, I ended up doing a, an IO insertion on him. Um, Got him RSI, tubed him on the first attempt, managed to get him to UTMB in Galveston, uh, where he under, he went straight to the cath lab. He actually survived. I think he was discharged like 72 hours later or something like that, yeah. full recovery. Yeah. And actually, our medical director specifically came from UTMB to the airbase to talk to you about it and been like, bomb job. And this dude walked away because of you and what you did. So. Yeah, and he was. Yeah, I think he was. Uh, he was the actual. He was a physician that I turned. He was actually on duty that night in the ER when we when we flew in with that guy. And oh, uh, awesome. yeah, that, that, there was a lot. There was a lot to that. And again, it's like, you know, if you if you put that call, if you put that same call on a ground ambulance, or if you put that same call on the back of an aircraft, you know, over land where you're, you know, a twenty minute, maybe a thirty minute flight to definitive care at most yeah um it's still it's still an emergency but it's not nearly as dynamic as if you throw in the fact that we're 170 you know 170 plus miles offshore and definitive care is not <coughs> excuse me tw uh, 20 minutes away definitive care is like an hour and a half right away right yeah. so it's like it's trying to manage a patient who's in flash pulmonary edema having a massive heart attack he, you know, we've, we've sedated and paralyzed him and intubated him. And now we need, we need to manage him for, you know, an hour and a half plus, um, to, to definitive care. It, it just, it, it always had a whole nother dynamic to it. than if you would take those same emergencies and those same calls and put them in the back of a ground ambulance or in the back of a, you know, a, a rural or, you know, overland, right. uh, air medical helicopter, you know? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, the differences are, are night and day too. Yeah, you mean your your longevity as to how far you're going from point A to point B. The tr I mean, the care is all going to be the same, but it's going to be all right. We have to we have this guy. I mean, we had a huge O2 tank that was like inside the med bed uh, in the aircraft just to yeah. have a long range SAR. It was not it was not a, unheard of for us to be flying for four hours to fly out to a spot turn around and fly back. So two hours out, two hours back, refueling on the platform, coming back. So. Yeah, man. I mean, I can remember some, 
seven, eight, nine hour round trips, you know, between getting out there and then <laughs> flying into New Orleans and then dropping them off. And then by the time you get back to base, you've been gone for seven, eight hours. Yeah. Yeah. Like all day. You know, like, like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, typically where I was, where I was flying at on land, you know, I mean, typically we were going for, from start to finish, we were going for, you know, three hours. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, the, di the difference there was just, it, it was drastic. We were, we were worn out some nights. Man. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Hence the reason our 80 Mountain Dews. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. Oh, man. You know what I thought about that operation though, man, was that the, the, we really had like a brother, we really had a brotherhood down there. We really had a family atmosphere. We were, together for two weeks at a time, sometimes three weeks at a time, uh, you know, spending 24 hours a day, kind of that home feeling, uh, kind of blunted the sting of being away from your actual family for so long. And uh, I think that's why we all got pretty close. I mean, we all came from different parts of the country down there. Right. And, you know, we, we also, you know, there's a lot of us that still stay in touch. You know, I can, I could pick up with any of you guys any day of the week and oh. it, it, it'd be like, be like we had just left. Absolutely. Yeah. Without a doubt. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's one of the, it's a great bond and brotherhood that we've, we've definitely gotten just from being down there. And Hey, I mean, heck you're right. We lived together for just about half the year. So half the year was with like the group of us down there. And then the other half was with our families. So we had two families. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. So and we, were, we were taking care of each other down there, you know, I mean, it was yeah. a, it, and when you get up in that helicopter and those doors come open, things get real in a hurry, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you, know, you have to have each other. It's not about you. It's about the guy next to you. So, you know, if you're taking care of him, he's taking care of you and everybody goes home safe. That's what we always we always shot for. You know, we always wanted to just go out there and do our job and make sure we came back in the, the same way we left. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, dude, dude, spot on. So. All right. So I, I want to talk about one more, dude, uh, out of the Gulf of Mexico. And then I'm going to I'm going to twist it into uh, a, something that happened to you at Air Evac. And we'll touch on that in a minute. But so this one in particular was another life saved by your crew. And I'm going to name drop uh, what I, I, the three for sure that I know was the hoist operator, was the rescue swimmer, and you as the paramedic. And it was to a cruise ship. Now, I love going to cruise ships. I, I just, it's a, it's a bummer that we have to go to the cruise ship to pick somebody up, but it is like going into a Super Bowl and you flash photography everywhere. And you're like, what? Everybody's filming you from the side of the deck of the ship. And you're like, this is crazy. So I get to see this on video. So you got uh, Bryce Twombly hoisting. You got Roger Wilson as your swimmer and you, and you guys get called out to a patient that if I remember correctly was uh, missed dialysis prior to getting on the the cruise ship and That's she right, a week before she missed a week of dialysis so she crashed on the ship and they go dude take it from there yes they um that so we were sitting i remember i remember that we were uh mike lorenzi was one of our pilots that night and uh, uh we, we were sitting in the in the in the house just hanging out mike comes in he's like hey the coast guard just called and said that there's a cruise ship inbound um, I think they were like, they was still a hundred and something miles offshore. He said, there's a cruise ship inbound with a critical patient on it. And, uh, the coast guard doesn't have, you know, they don't have a paramedic on board and they're wondering if, you know, like it's too critical for them to go out there and, and, and take care of They're wondering if we can go out there and do it. We're waiting on this and waiting on that. I was like, 
was like, dude, absolutely. I said, let's, you know, let's go. He was like, all right, well, we're going to wait around and, you know, and, and wait till we get word. I was like, well, all right, whatever. And then Mike comes back. He was like, well, what if we launch on a training flight? Yep. And then if, you know, things become a go, we're already out there. I was like, that's brilliant. So that's what we did. We ended up launching on a training flight. Yeah. And then the case became a go. And uh, and Raj, uh, I, I love, I love, I still talk to Raj. Raj Roger, the, that, that's that's one of my dudes, man. He's a good dude. Solid. Uh, I was solid. glad rescue to be out swear. there. He's a Coast Guard rescue swimmer. Night. Solid, solid guy. Yeah, just a good all around dude, man. Like, yep. I mean, you can't ask for a better guy. You know, he in the helicopter or out of there, solid. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a solid dude, man. I was happy to be on that case with him. Um, that was my, that was one of my first, I mean, I, I'd had a few kind of high profile cases before that, but that was like my first, like, this is going to be a really, really fun, interesting, this is going to be a high acuity patient with, there's going to be a lot going on here. Right. So we hoisted down to the front half of the, the front part of the deck of the cruise ship. And, uh, we go in the cruise ship and they actually, I remember this, they had a retired air force position on the medical staff of that cruise ship. And they had did a great job with this patient. Uh, the patient was in, uh, severe metabolic acidosis from missing dialysis for like a week, week and a half, uh, had went into, you know, severe renal failure and they ended up having to RSI her on the cruise ship and intubate her. Uh, they had like a Versed drip going and, and, and all kind of stuff. So the, the dynamic there was that the patient was already intubated when we got down on deck. So now we have to hoist her back into the helicopter with the breathing tube. I'm bagging her. I've got all my gear, ALS bag, life pack 15, oxygen tank. So we have to get all this stuff attached to me in the hoist with the patient and transition back into the aircraft. And it's a night hoist. Yeah. Um, like everything so, is going like against you guys on this case it was crazy yeah for sure yeah for sure so uh raj you know raj got me all hooked up and we put her in a we put the patient in a in a pet bag the patient extrication package um on a spawn board and had a uh we had our straps and everything. We were able to get everything attached to me and the hoist hook. I had stuff. And if the video, the, the FLIR video that we ended up taking it from, it kind of showed it, man. There was just stuff hanging off of me everywhere. A 40 pound freaking ALS bag, oxygen tank, a life pack monitor. Um, so Rod just in the, the, the tagline, we get to the, we get underneath the helicopter when we start hitting the rotor wall, she's tending a tagline well, so I'm kind of hanging and bagging and breathe for her. Uh, and then I get underneath the, the, the skid and I have to, I catch some rotor wall spin, right? And I spin underneath the skid and I have to, now I've got a god awful amount of weight attached to me with the patient and all the gear. And I have to separate, you know, and push away from the skid to clear me and the patient over the skid. And Bryce has got his foot on me and he's like pushing me away from the skid, trying to get it. And at one point, the only way that I could get clear of the skid was to let go of the bag valve mask that was still attached to the, the ET2. And I just remember just flashing through my head. I'm like, the rotor wash is going to take this freaking bag valve mask clean off of this ET2. And then we're really going to be in a bind right now. I don't have a way to freaking breathe for until I get in the aircraft. 
Luckily, long story short, the back valve mass stayed attached to the ET2. We ended up clearing the skid. Bryce did an excellent job of getting us back in the aircraft and transitioning us onto the the, um, the med bed. And then uh, we, you know, continued care into we flew in the Lords uh, that night. I remember that in uh, in Lafayette. And uh, I don't I don't recall that I, I didn't follow up. I don't recall the outcome of that patient, but that was a that was a pretty dynamic. That was a dynamic call. That was probably one of the more dynamic calls that I had out there in the Gulf, just because she was already intubated when we got there. So it, it was, you know, having to hoist her. Uh, and when you have an intubated patient, it's not like you can just come up with the patient and, and nothing else. You have to have oxygen. You need to have all your, your stuff with you because what, we're, what you get concerned about is if you just try to come up with an intubated patient and say a bag valve mask to try to make things, you know, lighten the load and get into the aircraft easier. And then we get into the aircraft with the patient and we get an aircraft emergency right. you know, or something where we have to immediately depart scene. Now all my ALS gear is left on scene and I have to leave with a patient and I have no way to, to, to maintain or continue care because all my gear is left on the deck. So your only option is to get the patient and all of your gear into the aircraft in one hoist. And we, we ended up making it happen. And, and you have to attribute that to the, the, the skill level of, of you guys coming from the Coast Guard uh, for years and years and just being so just being so competent and proficient at, at, at what at what we did down there. And uh, I mean, you know, I don't I don't think there's a lot of flight crews that could have pulled that off uh, as successfully as Bryce and Raj did that night. It was it was incredible. And the video that that was shown of you guys coming up uh, and you specifically bagging the patient in and it was it was on point, dude. It was every um, three to five seconds. It was a breath, you know, and, and just everything was exactly the way it was taught and the way it should be. And then you get to the, the skid and you see you come right around it. And the outcome that I had heard was that she lived because of you guys. So that, that guy just yeah. passed out to me when I came on to duty next. So no, I'm going to give you the, the props and say, good job. You, you saved her life. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. I was, I was a small part of a big team, man. Yeah, you know what I've told people too, in that, uh, you know, I've had some, I had some crazy stuff happen, uh, after I, I left, uh, the Gulf of Mexico into my next flight job. And, you know, w- with everything that happened there, which we'll, we'll talk about here in a bit. So, you know, I remember calling a few of the guys that were there in the initial part of me getting into because that was my first aviation job like uh, and imagine that I'm 24 years old you know I've been a medic for I had been a medic for like five years at that point right I was still like yeah. really young in my career to begin with and then <laughs> it's like here's your first flight job congratulations not only is it aviation but it's SAR as well which is a dream job for a civilian medic right yeah um and then you know fast forward to 2018 when all that other stuff happened uh, you know, I, I attribute the outcome of that incident to me being raised by competent, proficient guys like you that had been doing it for years and years before me and just kind of instilled that mindset, you know, that that, you know, no complacency mindset, that accountability mindset, uh, you know, because one day things are going to go bad and they're going to go bad in a moment's notice. And you don't have time to think you just have time to react kind of thing yeah. uh and i've told a lot of people dude i'm nothing i'm nothing more than a product of the people that i've surrounded myself by 
And, you know, it was you guys that I was surrounded by for, you know, so many years down there in the golf. And, uh, yeah, I learned, I learned a lot. Well, I, I'm going to get into that right now, that this case that you're talking about, because uh, it's an incredible read for anybody that wants to Google it and look it up. It's in Vertical Magazine. Um, the name of the article is A Flight, uh, A Fighting Chance, Surviving Pilot Incapacitation. Uh, it's written by Ellen Head, and this is dated March 19th, 2019. And what I'm going to do, Lane, is I'm just going to read really the, the first bit of this. And if you don't mind, I, I'd really like for you to take us through kind of what happened and and how you uh, how you guys as a team just made this work. So, all right? Yeah. All right. So here we go. Where are we going? It was January 12th, 2018. The Air Evac Life Team helicopter had just lifted from a scene call near its base in Kinder, Louisiana, north of Interstate I-10 between Lake Charles and Lafayette. The patient was a frail elderly woman who had been sedated and intubated on scene. In the back of the Bell 206L Long Ranger, flight nurse Tara Kuppel, is that right? Tara Kuppel. Tara Kuppel and flight paramedic Lane Abshire were attending to the patient when the pilot's voice came over the intercom. Where are we going? Lafayette General, Abshire answered, referring to Lafayette General Medical around 50 miles southeast of their location. Okay, where? The pilot asked. Abshire and Coupel thought at first that there was a problem with the ICS system. They unplugged their helmet cords and then plugged them back in and tried telling the pilot again. But he replied again. Okay, where? The helicopter was now 800 feet above the ground. Abshire asked Coupel to get out of her seat and tell the pilot where they were headed. She unbuckled her seatbelt, removed her helmet, moved forward to tap on the pilot's shoulder. Lafayette General, she shouted at him. Although she was disconnected from the ICS, she could see his mouthing words beneath the mic boom. Okay, where? Coupel returned to her seat, put on her helmet, and plugged in. Lane, something's going on, she said. It was around that time Abshire realized they were flying in the wrong direction. We were flying in a left-handed bank. We were flying in a left-handed circle, he recalled. And I'm like, there's something wrong. That's just the beginning of this article. Lane, when you called me to tell me this story, I, I was kind of, I was blown away. So if what I'd like you to do for us here is I'd like you to backtrack to us and, and kind of give us a rundown. You guys got called out to an elderly patient and you, so you got called out to an on-scene call. Yeah, and uh, we we entered the the residence. The patient was unresponsive. Was having a massive uh, massive CBA, uh, massive stroke. Um, so we elected to RSI her on scene and place an advanced airway. And so we uh, we got control of her airway, got her into the aircraft, put her on the the portable ventilator, the mechanical ventilator, uh, put some settings in, and you know, advanced breathing for. Her. And then uh, so Tara had actually my flight nurse had actually done the advanced airway. I let her intubate that day. So we ended up swapping seats for that flight so that she could continue managing the airway. Cause typically I would sit right behind the patient's head uh, for airway management purposes and whatnot. 
So uh, I, we got her in the aircraft, Tara secured. I closed the door. I'm checking latches and everything, doing a you know pre-take off walk around like we always do. And then I go to the front of the aircraft, and uh, our pilot is you know doing his pre-take off checklist. Gives me a thumbs up. I give him a thumbs up. Everything's cool. Everything's fine. I finish a pre-take off walk around. I get in the aircraft. I secure belts. You know, we're secure left, right, aft, ready for departure. He pulls pitch, and we're gone. He had never shut down. He just came to idle. Um, so I think he had came to idle. I don't recall. No, maybe not. No, he hadn't. He had shut down because we had decided to RSR. Uh, so we we take off. We get to altitude. And then, you know, he starts asking where we're going, like the article saying. And then, you know, and it kind of went back to, uh, I think, in aviation, we have a very systematic approach to, um, you know, potential emergencies, the, the, the communication issue. We have a systematic approach to sorting through that stuff. In SAR, we have a systematic approach with EPs on, you know, when things go wrong, it's boom, boom, boom. We take the guesswork out of it, you know, go through your steps, check this, check that unplug plug in yep. sort through it and then you know and so that's what we did and we realized it wasn't a, a an ics issue so that's when i you know, tara had to now the bell 206 the patient lays forward aft on the port side of the aircraft on the left side of the aircraft uh so you're kind of having to lean over the top of a patient if you're gonna if you're gonna talk to your pilot uh tara manages to do that he's just repeating himself over and over again uh, and he's just, he's, it's nothing, nothing's happening. So I realized we were, we were in, a, well, I realized we were in an emergency. We had an in-flight emergency. So, uh, I took my helmet off and got out of my seat and I, there's a crossbar over the, the patient, the stretcher, and it's a support beam, uh, for the, for the aircraft. So I managed to wedge myself between the patient and that, that support bar and get to the front of the aircraft. And man, when I tapped him, I just remember him looking at me, just looked right through me. And oh uh, it God. was, it was, yeah, it was, at, it was at that point where I was, you know, my heart kind of sunk in my throat and I was like, he's having a freaking stroke in the cockpit. And, uh, now, and, mind you, I just, I, I want to put this out there for everybody that's listening. You're in a single pilot aircraft right now, a belt uh, 206 can be flown yes, with two guys. Yeah, single you pilot have a aircraft. single pilot, one guy up front, two medics or a nurse and a medic in the back. One yeah. driver. Yeah. So I turn around at Tara and there was, you know, there's obviously <coughs> some, um, some emotions flying back and forth. Cause we realized, <clears throat> we realized what was going on. And then, uh, you know, one thing that we talked about after, uh, and uh, I talked about an, another podcast, uh, at AMTC was, uh, and the, the, the guy, Eric had brought it up. You know, he said, we always train in the, you know, the moment of calling a mayday, but it was kind of, it was kind of one of those things. I remember telling Tara, I was like, call, call the mayday, you know, like get on the radio, call the mayday. I had my helmet off, so I couldn't talk to her on my mic boom. So we were just having to yell back and forth. Um, but her getting on the radio, cause she still had her helmet on calling that mayday and then getting the comm center involved, getting the aviation guys involved, uh, gave her somebody to talk to. And that kind of got us both back on track and okay, like let's let's see what we can sort through while we still have, you know, whatever time we have left. Yeah. Um so, but you know, that mayday call thing, that mayday call is kind of like the admission that you have done everything you can in the short term, and now we have to 
openly admit that we were we are in an in-flight emergency and that is like the moment where things get pretty real yeah because it's like all right mayday mayday you know airvac 125 do you copy do you copy when you when those words mayday mayday actually come out of your mouth and you hear them on a radio it's like shit this is real like this yeah. is not a drill this is real we've practiced this over and over and then here we are in an actual scenario where it's it's actually real so we uh I, i'm trying to talk to him you know i'm trying to just get in the land in every field we're in a rural area very rural area and uh and it's just not happening uh so Long story short, randomly, he ends up looking at an aircraft and he says the words there, which was, you know, just completely different. So he, he ends up now this guy had been a 30 plus year military pilot, retired. Uh, uh, just I would have flown anywhere with this dude like this guy. This guy could just fly an aircraft and just the muscle memory of him flying the aircraft for so many years, I, I believe uh, it was just natural form. He made a he made a perfectly controlled descent of the aircraft. Um, I'm helping him control the cyclic because it appeared that he had a, a, a deficit on the on a, his right side where you know he would be controlling a cyclic. So I'm helping him just keep the the aircraft from you know drifting left and right. And he makes a perfectly freaking controlled descent of an air of a Bell 206 and and touches it down in somebody's backyard. As shit. I mean, and the thing is, is that it what's amazing is that um, it was as smooth of a, a smooth of a landing as I've ever had in the helicopter. And he's having an active bleed in his head, you know, so it, it just goes back to that that commitment to excellence. And he had been doing it for so long and so many years that even in a, a neurologic emergency, he still got enough muscle memory to make a controlled descent of a 206 and freaking <laughs> landed in somebody's yard. Wow. So hindsight, you know, fast forward after post incident, we ended up getting him to a hospital and transferred care of our patient to another aircraft and got everything sorted out. Um, He ended up having a bleed in his Brokaw's area, uh, I believe is what it was, which is the the reason why he just kept repeating himself over and over again. Um, The. The crazy part about it is after I was able to sit and talk with him in the aftermath of it, him and I were able to sit down a few times and, and chat. And um, he actually, and this was unbeknownst to us, obviously, because we're in an emergency, it's all hindsight, but he was actually able to understand everything that I was trying to tell him to do. Uh, he just couldn't, uh, he couldn't process it and put it into action. So he wow. understood everything I was telling him. He just couldn't wow. do anything about it because he, he had a bleeding there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as traumatizing as a, uh, as crazy of an incident as that was for us, it was equally uh, stressful for him because, you know, he's at the controls of an aircraft. He understands everything I'm trying to tell him to do, but he can't do anything about it. Oh yeah, he's just he, God, he's, dude. It, because he's, he's got to believe it. He can't he can't formulate a response to me. Um, because he's, he's got a bleed in his head that prevents him from formulating a, a, a logical response. Wow. wow. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, I, there's two other things that, that you had told me, um, you know, when, when you first called me that really stuck out to me. And it's still today. I, I think about it is that when you guys landed, you know, cause like you said, you were helping them kind of control the aircraft to get down to the ground. And again, you started at about 800 feet and had to slowly descend into some dude's backyard, which I'm going to touch on in a second. But when you landed, 
his his response was to try to take off again and you had to push the collective down and then shut off fuels and batteries and everything else to actually shut the aircraft down so he couldn't take off yeah we so and that was another thing talking about eps and stuff right one thing that we practiced a lot of um was emergency shutdown procedures so as soon as we got to the ground i initiated an emergency uh shutdown procedure i throttled down killed the fuel killed the battery over the head and engaged the rotor brake um and then once the rotor stopped spinning my flight nurse got out and went around and actually had to physically remove him uh from the cockpit so she gets him out of the aircraft i'm trying to peel myself out backwards mind you i'm i literally unfortunately i had to crawl on top of an intubated unresponsive patient which hindsight it was probably a good thing that she was unresponsive because that would have just been a, a whole nother, a whole, that would have been a whole nother scenario in itself. Had we had a patient who was actually responsive oh, gosh, in the yeah. aircraft, um, just, just a whole nother thing to worry about and, and have to kind of sort through. Right. So, um, while I'm trying to peel myself out of the aircraft so I can get out the aircraft, uh, he's trying to get back in the aircraft and flip battery power back on. Like we have somewhere to go. Uh, so that, you know, my flight nurse was able to keep him away from the aircraft and, you know, buy me some time to get out and then, uh, then, uh, you know, at that time, everybody's showing up on scene because 911, 911 had actually dispatched everybody, uh, for an aircraft crash. So yeah. I mean, we've got other helicopters coming, we've got law enforcement and fire and, and, and everybody, uh, kind of converging on our general area, waiting to see what happens. Um, but it, it all worked out, man. And, and again, dude, it was one of the things it's like, you know, you have to attribute, you have to tip your hat to to the pilot, you know, 30, 30 plus years of flying an aircraft and still being able to do that in a, in a time where his brain is actively bleeding. Um, and then, you know, everything from the, the crew aspect, it's just a team aspect, right? It's not any one individual or, or anything. Agree. I've often, I've often thought about like, what, how would that situation have changed had it been a brand new flight crew on board or a flight nurse and a flight paramedic that had never flown together? Um, or in an inexperienced pilot or, or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, if it wouldn't have been as experienced of a team as we had in the aircraft that day between the pilot and then myself and Tara, who had been flying together for some time. So we, we knew each other. We were very comfortable with each other uh, in the back of the aircraft. So I often wonder how that situation may have, may have panned out. Had it been, uh, had it been a little different. Well, this is the other part of this because, you know, I, I believe you guys had a little extra hand on that, especially when you tell everybody whose backyard you landed in. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was kind of a part of the story. You really couldn't make up if you tried. Uh, Cause I was trying to get him to land anywhere. I mean, I just wanted him to put it down in a field. Uh, we were flying over, you know, rice fields and crawfish ponds. I'm like, I just, just like, we just need to get to the ground. Right. Yeah. And uh, of all the places he could have landed that helicopter, he, uh, we ended up landing, we landed in a yard and after everything kind of settled down, the neighbors had come out and they were like, is, you know, is everything okay? And we're like, yeah, you know, everything's good. And which was a flat out freaking lie. <laughs> right. But <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, everything's good. You know, we just had to make a precautionary, a precautionary landing. Um, and then the other neighbor comes out and he comes and he's talking to me and, uh, he's like, uh, he, he said, you know, he said, uh, 
I forgot exactly how he worded it, but long story short, we had managed to put that aircraft down in the in the yard of the local pastor of the of the church. I'm Can like, I dude, get an amen. <laughs> I don't care what you believe in, but you can't make that up. No. So you know what you you had three crew members and a patient and then an extra hand with you that day. Yeah. It brought yeah. you to the backyard of a pastor's house, dude. Yeah. Crazy. And, and you but know what? It, and you're here just... talking to me about it and I, I am blessed to know you and happy to have you as a friend, my brother. Yeah. Likewise, man. Likewise, you know, and, and I, going back to, you know, uh, a lesson learned there, um, and this was this was like a big takeaway for me because I was raised on the SAR side of things. One thing that we lived and died by in SAR were those damn checklists, right? <laughs> the pre-takeoff checklist, the on-scene checklist, and then the rescue checklist, and right? Then- but before and, and, and they were all done religiously, and they were done every single flight. You didn't miss them. That was it. Was just a it, it was a it was a you just didn't miss them, right? Fact. So a takeaway from that flight, and I beat myself up on it for a while just because it was literally. So we had a pre takeoff checklist and a, a pre landing checklist in a, in a two hundred six, and one thing that I that we did not do just the patient's critical. We're trying to you know we're moving fast. We're trying to move smooth and and, and get the patient to definitive care. We actually. Uh, we actually missed the pre-takeoff checklist before pulling pitch. And it's the only time in my entire career that we have, uh, that I've ever, ever missed a freaking checklist. And that was the end result of it, you know, and in hindsight, I, I don't think there's no part of me that thinks that it would have changed anything, but I couldn't help but wonder, like if we would have did that pre-takeoff checklist, you know, would he have responded inappropriately at any point in time during the checklist? Cause it's a challenge response. So you, yeah, you, so I couldn't, I yep. couldn't help, <clears throat> I couldn't help but wonder, like, if we hadn't missed the checklist, if at any point in time, because it's a challenge response checklist, I'm asking you something and you are required to respond w- with an with an answer, you know, checking uh, temps and gauges, uh, your engine RPM, is fuel level, and all that stuff. If he would have responded inappropriately at any point in time during that checklist, then maybe I could have kept him on the ground. Yeah. You know, like it responded weirdly. And I'm like, wait, no, something ain't right here. Shut the aircraft down. We're going by ground kind of thing. Yeah. Hindsight of it. I don't think it would have changed. I don't think it would have changed anything because I did during the pre-takeoff walk around. I stood at the front of the aircraft while he was starting it up. He went through his checklist, you know, in the, in the cockpit of the aircraft, his startup procedures. And he, he did a startup procedures flawlessly. Um, and then when we got in the aircraft, he needed to turn the main O2 on in the back and he understood whenever we asked him to do that, he turned the switch on. I don't think it would have changed anything, but coming from that SAR background where we live and die by those checklists, right. I couldn't help but wonder, right? You, you just, you couldn't help but wonder. So, you know, that, that one of the takeaways is just like, man, you know, slow down, no matter what's going on, slow your mind down just enough to, to make sure you get that checklist done because it might save your life. Yeah, man. Great advice. Great advice. And, I, and we live and die by the checklist every time I go flying now too. For sure. I, I mean, uh, you know, from as simple as just making sure your rigging is set up, you know, the appropriate way in the back of the aircraft. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I mean, that's awesome. Lane, I'm, man, I'm beside myself, dude. That story is just, every time I hear it, I'm like, 
dude, I'm so happy I'm sitting here talking to you. So yeah, yeah, I'm happy I'm sitting here talking yeah. to you too. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> dude, well, I, the floor is going to be open to you, buddy. You know, you can kind of touch on anything. I know you just talked about, you know, checklists and stuff as far as um, is something that you took away from that, but any advice you would give anybody else out there? Yeah, man, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's like I said earlier, I'm nothing more than a product of the people that I've surrounded myself by in my career. Uh, I've been fortunate to be surrounded by people who are a hell of a lot smarter than than I am. And uh, I've just tried to, to be a sponge around those people and, and just constantly try to learn something from them every day. Uh, you know, so I, I think, uh, you know, at advice wise you know surround yourself with people who are going to challenge you surround yourself with people who are intelligent that are going to teach you something uh you know and then i've been lucky to be surrounded by people who believe in accountability uh and have held me accountable and has taught me accountability and, and holding other people the same uh and i think at the end of the day accountability is what prevents complacency uh and if you can't prevent complacency uh then you, you know it's that, I think that's when things get, can get bad. Uh, I think complacency is what kills. And I think accountability helps prevent that. Well said, sir. Well said. Man, that, that's awesome. Lane, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and just sharing this stuff with us. It's it's always a pleasure to see you, brother. Like, I, I love seeing you. Uh, but the fact yeah, that you just, you know, you're sharing this with a lot of people right now that, that are like, if, if they're like me, sitting there like holy cow the dude had a stroke in the front of the helicopter and you helped him land in the back of a pastor's house are you kidding me right now <laughs> yeah just teamwork man you know it's make, awesome. you're only as good you're only as good as the weakest link in your team and you know fortunate for us that day there wasn't a weak link in it damn right freaking awesome well thank you lane i i've taken too much of your time already and i appreciate you being here so no nah, brother i'm glad we got to catch up man it's been a long time Absolutely. And uh, I'll give you a call again hey, sometime offline. All right, brother. Hey, stay safe out there. Fly safe. And uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, you too, my man. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute and like my daughters like to tell me, like and subscribe. Oh, yeah. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story that they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you as a guest. Or if you have any questions about any of the rescues or anything else that we talk about here on this podcast, send me an email, therealrescue at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q at gmail.com. You can also check us out on our Facebook and Instagram page at The Real Rescue. That's at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. I also want to give a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember that when that SAR alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard.